Kent Garrett. Welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard College class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and are now 80 years old. In 1959, we entered Harvard as Negroes, but graduated as Blacks and African Americans. Our guest is our classmate, Ezra Griffith. He will be talking about othering and the mechanisms of othering. Ezra was born in Barbados in 1942. He is a psychiatrist. He is Professor Emeritus of and Senior Research Scientist in Psychiatry at the Yale University School of Medicine. He's also Emeritus Professor of African and African American Studies at Yale University. I'm joined by 14 of my classmates. Hi, I'm Richard Rabinowitz. I'm a class of 66, so I'm a little younger than all of you. Um, and uh, I spent a career mostly making history museums and exhibitions around the United States. In the last 20 or 30 years, a lot of those were museums about exhibits about slavery and about uh, the new African-American Museum in Washington, and Birmingham, and Memphis, and places like that. Okay, Mason. Uh, I'm sitting here wondering why I recently made a decision to forego an all-expenses-paid fishing trip to Cuba so Ooh. that I could attend my 60th reunion. Oh, wow. oh my gosh. Wow. And I'm, wow. Not, I'm not persuaded yet that was the right decision. <laughs> who, who sponsors trips like that? Uh, a wealthy friend of mine. Oh, boy. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Uh, Nick. Nick Bancroft, uh, Business School, Peace Corps, India, 66, and uh, investments and trusts and wills in Boston. Most of the time after that now, retired. Peter Grillo. Um, I was class of, originally class of 63. I graduated in 65, actually. Um, spent most of my life working on things having to do with Japan, where I grew up. Here. I'm Ann Huberman, class of 63. I live in Peterborough, New Hampshire. I'm an academic librarian, retired, now a climate activist. Okay, John Woodford. Oh, hi, John. You're here in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where I work for the university's uh, publication for alumni for a number of years and had stints at other publications. So kind of an editor writer. Okay, Hampton. Nashville, Tennessee, psychology, still working. Peter Lescobal. Yeah, in New Hampshire, I'm looking forward to the discussion as I'm convinced that we all create our own worlds in our, with our thoughts more than we suspect. <laughs> okay, that's probably true. Doug. <laughs> uh, Doug Shapiro, I live in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, spring has finally arrived here. Uh, which makes my wife extremely happy because she can spend time uh, planting flowers in the garden, uh, which she's very good at it. And that makes me happy because the more she's happy, the happier that I am. That's <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's good. Marcy. In New York City, still working, um, uh, especially on getting an archive better organized and characterized so that a major repository can take the, the huge collection. 
Um, and going over the past decades, I see that besides othering, which is intensely interesting, I'm interested in two-sided battles in which uh, the other side is um, mischaracterized and hated on both sides. Okay. All right. <laughs> That's interesting. Ken. In Manister, I'm in uh, Los Altos, California, uh, also a class of 63 guy. I'm a retired environmental law professor from Santa Clara University. Spencer. Spencer, Spencer from sunny Florida. Spring has sprung and uh, passionately involved uh, 24 hours a day now, it seems, and uh, the blossoming crisis of sustainable development. All right. David. David Osmer from Philadelphia. I've been active in public broadcasting most of my life, both in New York City and here in Philadelphia. All right. Now we go to Ezra. Thank you for coming on again and uh, being with us and joining us. And uh, tell us about Othering. Well, thank you very much, Ken, for uh, the invitation. I understand that I had made a comment in a preceding meeting and someone had picked it up and suggested to you that uh, I might talk to the group a little bit about it. These days, this concept has come back into substantial currency. It is not, it's not a new one, but I think it has taken on uh, substantial life with the way in which uh, things are happening both nationally and internationally. The other refers uh, to the unfamiliar person, the person not immediately seen as one who relieves your anxiety, the person who is strange, provocative, uh, who makes you feel ill at ease. It's a concept that um, has been around in, in, in psychiatry and, and psychology. And developing from notions that I won't spend much time on, uh, partly because I'm careful about entering into terrain, which I'm uh, not particularly interested in. So I don't want to mislead people, but it is an old concept, a concept that has started in thinking about what goes on in childhood. In fact, the infant comes into contact uh, with uh, with human human objects in a sense in, in in maturing and there are people of course who take on familiarity and who are recognized as uh, dealing with the infant's needs and the infant's ill at ease uh, when not com comfortable uh, in in the sense of um, warm and uh, feeling however one can intuit that sense of feeling at the early ages but the person recognizes some difference in individuals and the way in which these people offer comfort the the comforting continues as the familiarity grows and still and still somewhere in uh, in, in in the infant there is a sense of the person who is not meeting the criteria that the infant somehow intuitively sets up to make the distinctions. 
Now, the processes that go on, which again, I won't touch much on, but there are processes that obviously uh, get put in place with the maturing of the infant into childhood and into adolescence. And of course, we'll talk about it clearly as a concept that's interesting and important for us uh, in adulthood. So uh, I'm throwing out adjectives uh, that I think people try to internalize in thinking about the, the, the notion of coming into contact with people who don't immediately soothe, don't provide relief of discomfort. And then as the things move into uh, older ages, there is the sense that the, 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 these people who are not recognized as being comfortable and who generate anxiety, they take on a tone that is the one that uh, we are particularly interested in now in adult psychiatry because these people seem, we seem to transform them into potentially dangerous people, people who are suspect. And then I'm going to try and talk about how that gets incorporated into uh, things that we've talked about here before, because I, I was here present at discussions, uh, particularly the development of caste and the development of difference, uh, potentially related to uh, the two books that we had talked about uh, by that uh, journalist, journalist author. The important, the important distinction is that we, we, we have a different, a, a sense of a different meaning for difference and, and othering. And I want to spend a few minutes on that because that's really what we need to be talking about today. We recognize that along many axes, there are people who are different from us. And I know we've talked about it here before that the difference gets magnified and particularly hypertrophied in the United States when we talk about the difference between uh, color slash ethnicity. And it's something that's important. Now, the whole point is that distinction, if we're talking just about difference, takes on a feeling, hopefully, that someone who's different from us can be lauded, can be imitated, can be revered, and so on. The contrast with othering is that othering has taken on now in dealing with the, the issue of, of, uh, of race, is the sense that the person is very different from us, and we go to we go to great lengths uh, to make sure that everybody understands that we think the other is inferior to us. So where 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 have we met it? Where have we met it? Where do we see it? This whole business of that person being uh, uh, an other. Well, of course, I met it in Barbados growing up. What we've come to recognize now is that othering is a substantive mechanism used in the history of colonization. People would say that with the kind of colonization we're talking about is uh, certainly in, in the hemisphere I grew up in, is a colonization uh, linked to slavery. And so there's the distinction that the other is, um, is, is, is being inferior to the colonizer. And the sense of dominance uh, pervades all of it. We know that it, uh, 
For many years, it's been used even for justification for the colonization because the other needed to be brought up to the standards of uh, the dominant group. And so, and so it, was, it was important to, to say that one way of doing that is to, to help with the improvement, to render the inferior person uh, possibly, the possibility of, of living a different kind of life. Let me, let me try and, and, and talk about this, this distinction between a difference and othering by reading to you uh, a couple of vignettes from a book that I've worked on in the past and now we're working on it again because it, it's, it's being reissued. So it's a, it's a, these words are from Chester Pierce, who was a professor at Harvard and uh, one of my mentors when I was, of course, considerably younger. He tells of the experience while attending High Table in Lowell House, when a professor said to him, you black man, where do you come from? And Chet pointed out in his discussions with me that the professor could have addressed him as a, you, you the person wearing glasses, but he appreciated the comment as the professor's intending to be demeaning. Now I'm not here to argue whether uh, the perceptions all the time are, are supported by concrete evidence and so on, just as, just as many experiences for people in everyday life when they talk about feeling the impact of racism, don't have a proof necessarily to offer for it. Because this is always a two-sided thing and they're two, always two participants in the interaction. But, but there, the, 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 the distinction between uh, difference and othering is perceived by Chet Pierce as one of othering, that the individual intended to be demeaning. And that was, that was at the heart, that was at the heart of the interaction. Now he gives, he gives other examples. A fellow student once told him that he knew more English than he did. Uh, and when asked why this was evident, the student replied that the fact spoke for itself. And Chet said he was of course struck by this white student's certainty of his own superior knowledge. I mean, here, here, is the, the, here again, the distinction is being put on this axe of, of, of a knowledge base, and one person claims he is inherently superior to the other in, uh, in the possession, of, of, in possession of, of the knowledge base. And he says it with a flicker of satisfaction, says says, uh, says yeah. Now, he adds to the point, of course, that, that he, uh, he was did have some satisfaction later on when that particular student who treated him like that flunked out of Harvard. Now, the, the examples I've given you also butt right up against the idea immediately of, uh, of privilege, because when there's this distinction of othering operating around you, then it's concern um, that the other person who is, who, who is either considered or, or is considering him, him or herself to be inherently superior, that person also uh, gravitates towards um, a kind of behavior and a kind of thinking that then exudes uh, this idea of privilege. And a lot of people are writing these days about this notion, particularly in the context of race, that the white dominant group takes on manners and mannerisms that uh, that demonstrate and illustrate white privilege. This privilege uh, is is um, is is important 
is important to the dominating group uh, and so important that it, 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 also be, it almost becomes um, the ones putting on a natural kind of skin. And so, so one of the dangers of, uh, and the dangers of the notion of white privilege and, and what makes othering so very important is um, that this operative mechanism where the dominant group then believes in this assertion of being superior and, 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 and reinforces treatment of the other person as, um, as more than just different, but different with, with characteristics of inferiority. One of the concerns for, for me, and this is why I've been interested in it these days, is that it, it, the ubiquitousness of it has become uh, much more recognizable, much more prominent, and all of us uh, seem to be using it and I will get to that in a second, using it in, in uh, many classifications of discourse, which I think that's the way in which it came up when I was just mentioning uh, it on, on, on this podcast, because I think, if I remember correctly, it came up when we were talking about caste. Now, let's talk about this mundane discourse and the operationalizing of othering in an amazing number of spaces and, and, and what I call geographies. It is very commonly found in the literature when you discuss war. I lived it in Vietnam and lived it in the time that I spent in the military because I had the unusual experience in, in the military of having been drafted uh, right out of college before I went to medical school. So I went in as an enlisted man where the, the institution uh, goes out of its way to make it very clear uh, that the enlisted man in many ways is really an other group. And that's just, I, I'm not interested in, in talking about whether you like it or don't like it, or it's just observable and it's very clear um, how enlisted people are treated within the context of an organized institution uh, that, that you can see how within armies, people develop this notion of groups being othered uh, within the structure. But in Vietnam, one of the things that struck me also, and I came across, uh, I, I came out of it with, with, with scars that I, I, I still reflect on from time to time, because the Vietnamese, of course, were treated like other groups. And so we do it quite naturally, this othering, uh, when we are in the war context, that the people who are on the other side of the fence and you're fighting against, uh, the, the, the language, the structure, the processes are all developed to make it clear that that slant-eyed person you're going up against is absolutely diabolical and so on and so forth. Now, I, do, I don't have to go very far. If you look at the literature, the current literature, how, and, th and this, is, this is really strategically part of the course, I am, I am struck when, the, when, when public officers representing the government, it's very hard for them to talk about the other side without making use of the mechanism of othering. The other person is idiotic, uh, ugly, 
evil, unlettered. I mean, you can, if you if you read carefully, you can find all kinds of examples of it. And of course, the major problem is when that is 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 frequently used in the context to where a war is going on, what how it seeps into uh, the civil discourse, it becomes problematic. There is no person here at this meeting who can't recognize the mechanism of othering over the years when a certain president was in uh, in charge. And I'm not trying to get up any kind of conversation about Democrats versus Republicans. That's not what I'm here for. And it's none of my business whether you are independent, Republican or Democratic. But if you can't recognize the notions of othering in the way in which certain people talk to each other, then I, I would like to spend more time with you trying to convince you of the currency and the significance of, of this mechanism. <laughs> mm. um, now, I, since, since, since you're all Havardians, I want to tell you where I first met it and, uh, in, in those early years and uh, uh, use it in my own writing and thinking. I mean, because I was in the dining room uh, Lowell House and had a very negative experience. I had an argument with one of the staff members and uh, and I let out, um, it was not a four letter word. It actually was a seven letter word. So it wasn't all that bad. But <laughs> the, it, it, in, in, in other words, I wasn't, I, I was disrespectful, but I was not, uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't step out of bounds to the point where I was in any significant trouble. But nevertheless, I was in some hot water and the master called me in. And the master said, you are going to apologize, which of course which of course, I knew I was going to do and I did it. I apologized, but he said, you're going to apologize. And I know you, that word you used, you may be accustomed to hearing it back home, but we don't use it here at Harvard. And um, the reason it hurt me so much, of course, was, was that it, it wasn't, I mean, he didn't exaggerate. He didn't go on, you know, in any peroration for minutes or hours or whatever. It was just a sentence. It was just a sentence, but it was a telling sentence. And he was basically saying, I know where you come from. Uh, you don't do that here. Uh, now, why did it hurt me so much? So coming back to that, well, it hurt me so much because it was a word that I could never have used in my family. Uh, but he apparently didn't know that or hadn't thought about it. He thought somehow that, I don't know, well, I, I mean, I, I could spend more time on it, but it doesn't really make any difference. It, the, the, the point is that is a perfect example of others. And a terribly mistaken example because it didn't go on in my house and could not have gone on in my house. I couldn't talk to my, I couldn't talk to any of my parents with my hands in my pockets. That was not part of Caribbean culture. Those of you who know Caribbean culture, you couldn't do that because you weren't a man in the house. You might be a man outside, but you're never a man in the house. And I couldn't smoke a cigarette, for example, in front of my mother or father. So for this person to have thought that I could use the words was just absolutely um, amusing. Because <laughs> I want you, I want this thing to get into your consciousness. Because I am absolutely thunderstruck, of course, by the way in which it has invaded organizations. <clears throat> Let me tell you about churches. When I was growing up in Barbados, 
in the I sang in the cathedral choir, and I, I was walking one day around among the pews in the <clears throat> in the church, and I saw a little a little label on the side. You know, you know when you inside you're inside the pew, right? And you you're you're, you're facing forward, and at the sort of um, at the level. Uh, just just a couple of inches below your waist would be a little jut out of a thing where you would put a hymn book on. And on that, it, it was a small rectangular thing with names on it. And I went and asked somebody, uh, what, what, well, what does that mean? Why, is, why are people's names on that? And the person explained to me, well, because, because in, in, the, in the Anglican church in the olden days, you used to rent a pew. So white people rented pews in church. And uh, and I got to understand what what that meant. The rental of the rental of the pew was to make sure that you could sit there and you'd be separated from others from others. So people made it made a serious effort uh, to make sure that their seat was a protected space. If they were at a service where blacks would be coming to sit with the white people in power, so I hope everybody understands what how I described that. In academia, where I've spent uh, where I've spent almost forty years, uh, the methods I don't have to spend a long time talking about that. It's um, we 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 go to we go to incredible uh, lengths to make sure that it is not just distinctions in rank, but the distinctions in rank, which are very clearly set up, so that there are those who have not achieved certain ranks that they are clearly inferior. I spent a lot of my time uh, in the last 25 years uh, being interested in using narrative. I bring that to your attention because one of the things that we do in psychiatric narratives, particularly in my subspecialty, which is psychiatry and law, is when we do reports, we go to distinct, we, we do it by accident. Some people do it by intention but we create monster stories. We create monster stories so that when we go to court, lawyers, we, we can give ammunition to lawyers who can say that this person being accused of X or Y or Z is, is not only guilty, but is actually um, a monster at doing it, whatever that person has done. And of course, the whole point then that in training, we've tried to make sure that people understand that monster stories are unfair. Because it's one thing to talk about what the person has done. It's another thing to try to impute uh, inferiority and difference to uh, a point where everybody in the courtroom is then against uh, the accused uh, from, from, from that point of view. That's, that's obviously unfair. It's an injustice. And you can't, you, and, and, and it, it, it shouldn't be done. Judicial narratives, just another example. This is so common now on television recently. I was just shocked at the stuff being discussed about pedophiles. It was amazing to me that informed, very well-educated people were standing up in public and talking about pedophiles as though clearly there were the other. And that is tantamount to being um, uh, inhumane that they're not human, they're not quite human. And of course, you know, because I've heard many of you talk and you know all the literature 
that's related to the stories of, of slavery and the stories of colonization. When uh, some of them reached the, the boundary of suggesting that the other person really was less than human. There's something, there's something even hinted uh, in, in, in that in a converse way, because I was reading something uh, the other day and I, I was really struck. The language used to describe the early notions of royalty had to do with the fact that the king and the queen and so on were not quite human. So that the, 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 the white privilege extended in the converse direction to assert to assert that yes, on, on the lower bottom of the caste ladder, those people can be less than human. And then on the upper part of the caste ladder, there is such a notion that royalty, certain parts of royalty, that they were like, bigger than human. They were a, a step above the average human person. Last example I'm gonna give you because it, it's, it's amazing to me how the thing has taken on life on the soccer so on soccer teams because those of you who know me know that I, I actually played soccer at Harvard but I, I certainly I certainly didn't go on to be any national international star but I, I maintain an interest in it which had to do with my real proclivities for the game and so on and so forth and I was always struck ladies and gentlemen you know on a soccer team there are 11 people on the team and it is amazing we have actually set up a structure in certain countries where we assert, we assert that forwards, forwards those who, those who attack in the game are actually of a different human class than those who play in the middle. And certainly we're better than those who play at the back. Uh, defenders are simply not, um, they just, you know, they just can't cut it. We, we, we tolerate them because we need them. <laughs> they take up more space and so on, and they stop the ball from going in the net, in the goal. <laughs> but when you get serious on a Saturday night, and you have a bear or so, I can, I can tell you what conversations where, ah, man, he's six foot four. That's why he's on the team. Doesn't have anything to do with cleverness. He has no intelligence for the game and so on and so forth. Now, I'm partly joking, of course. But you know I'm partly not joking because the salaries in professional life between the, the, those, those famous attackers up front and the guys in the back, in certain cases, they are remarkably disconcerting, uh, the, the incredible distinction. So what I want to leave you with, looking over my notes, notions that, yes, uh, othering is related uh, to this notion of dignity and the distinctions of rank. And I remind you that there are two types of dignity. And uh, I spent a lot of time struggling with it and thinking about how you put it into place in organizations and institutions. There's what we call dignity of rank. We can't get away from that. Rank still exists within the civil society. There are captains, there are majors. I don't care, I don't care what institution you have. I can, I can show you the structure, uh, the ladder structure that exists. The point is, however, to understand that within that ladder structure, uh, there is what we call humanitas, which is different from dignitas. The humanitas has to do with the basic inviolable humanity of every individual in the institution. 
That's what we call establishing a floor of decency. And we've established rules of decency. You cannot break those rules in, 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 in thinking about how you treat anyone in the organization. In other words, that's a basic, basic level. And that's the notion of humanitas. When you get below that, where you establish those, you establish practices related to that, that's what we're talking about when we call it othering. And othering has become too common a mechanism used all throughout the society. I am amazed at how it's invaded the discourse. And um, it's, I, I don't quite know how to get rid of it, but I'm, 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 I'm certainly troubled by it uh, because, because it's one thing to say, you know, I, I think you're wrong on that. But it, it, when we start acting out the other piece, which is, but you're wrong, not only are you wrong, because you just can't understand what I'm telling you and you can't understand because your intelligence is not quite up to mine. And that's the characterizing of the exchange in vocabulary these days. And, and, that, and that's, that's a problem, it's a problem for all of us. I'm not suggesting, I'm not suggesting I leave you to this, I'm not suggesting that othering is um, only operative. And I hope you've, hope you've grasped that from what I say. It is not only operative in the business about the operation of race distinctions. It's operative also, and that's what I was trying to establish the last time in the discussion, because I was saying that that's the point of the notion of caste the caste establishes the, 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 the basic idea that put aside race, we still have a way of thinking that we are different from the other person and superior to that person, or that person is different from us because that person is inherently inferior. And, and, and that's, that's othering, and that's what we've got to try and work on. <clears throat> Thank you. Richard. Um, yeah. When actually, um, when I was when I was in college, I found there was a book assigned to us in history by Lee Benson called "The Concept of Jacksonian Democracy," and he developed. A, he came out of a Marxist background, but he had begun to see that the rivalry, particularly of uh, black and Irish populations in the eastern cities, was really becoming central to the politics and the role of the WASP elite somehow or another in engineering that rivalry was a way of understanding uh, American politics. And he used the term negative reference groups, which I think is still used in sociology. Um, and it's interesting to me that that concept has become much more exploded into much greater focus. Much Before that, there was a lot of energy during the Marxist earlier years in terms of class, but now it became these ethnic groups who were rivals. And clearly the history of New York City in the 19th century is all about, you know, the Democrats are in the, the Irish are dominating a democratic party and blacks are almost entirely in, in, uh, in whatever party is opposed to the Democrats. So I just wondered if you, if you've thought about how this worked out in terms of a political process, how the formation of these rivalous social groups, often economic groups in the city competing for the same jobs, develops into a kind of 
uh, othering, uh, which, which might start as a kind of social process. These are the guys that we're contesting with, but now, it, now we have to develop a whole series of personal psychological uh, sort of denigrations to sort of justify our, our position. Does, does that make any sense, the kind of relationship between othering and this negative reference group idea? Yes, I, I, I think there are inherently some similarities. Your, your idea, of course, is so important because it leads me to another, another associative thought. And my associative thought is that I, I hope when I, after having said what I've said, that you understand othering is so ubiquitous that it, it, it occurs also internally within the group, far less, far less um, just um, in, interactionally in, 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 in the political context. The political context, of course, has been dealt with uh, e enormously. You can find othering in political groups uh, across just about every country. And, uh, and sometimes, <laughs> as a mentor of mine once used to say to me, you know, when people are talking about um, what when people are talking about race, they 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 actually they actually talking about 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 sex, and when they talk about sex, they actually talk about race. And you see this and you see this uh, operative in, uh, in 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 political groups all the time. The original groups, Barbados is a wonderful example. The original groups, you know, were established. Yes. They were established uh, based on uh, the rivalries between uh, the, the the white group remaining in Barbados from the colonizers and the black groups. When many of the whites left, <laughs> we we had to we had to find a way of the, the black groups had to find a way of distinguishing themselves. And 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 Richard, that that's one of the ways in which uh, the. The the uh, I'm trying to find the right words for it. The but that's the way in which the black distinctions were forced to develop. Interestingly, in political, you you follow me, and because because now now the whites are reduced in number, and so they 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 only become real because in terms of the wealth behind the scenes, the wealth is still majority controlled by the white people, right? Because many of them are overseas, but they still leave their investments. But now the blacks. The blacks are now uh, are fighting over over uh, the government, the, the government spots in the House of Assembly, and uh, they, they, you've, you've got to find a way of distinguishing yourself from the other, from the other individual. I'll watch how I use this word "other," but the, the, from the other individuals, you, you you know, you're trying to differentiate yourself in terms of a political context, and so how do you do that? And uh, when I look at the history books. They spent a lot of time trying to say why if you take, you take 10, 10, 10, 10 black, and there were many males there, you take, take 10 black males of that period, they, they had to find different programs to talk about. And the only way to do that was to find a way to other the other guy. So, so it had an impact even in that context, and it's fascinating to watch it, how they try started to differentiate themselves. And in the beginning, the distinctions we're in favor all the time. Everybody's got something to say about the blacks are in because the blacks were all almost all in lower classes. Those were the people cutting the canes and so on. You follow me? So that's when the trade unions, for example, in Barbados developed. And that worked all right. That worked all right for a few decades. 
but it wasn't good enough now because you got to differentiate yourself from the other because they started fighting as you would expect. You know, I'm talking the leaders, the leaders started fighting. So differentiating themselves one from the other, they had to find a way of how to classify, how to classify these distinctions. And, and the safest way, this is part of the political stuff, I think, that I've tried to understand, part of the easiest way to differentiate yourself in the political context from, from, the, from the person on the other side of the street is to other him. You've got to other him because you can't, you can't be saying, you know, he's actually like me. He's all right. But then, then the voter is confused. So the voter wants to know how, he, how is he different from you? And you, you get dragged into the othering fight without meaning to. All right, let me go to Hampton. Ham. I just want to share this. Uh, I, I'm from a background where I, I lived in a summer resort on Long Island, 90 miles from New York City. And my father, the first things he would say to anybody else that he just met from any class was, I graduated from Yale and Harvard Business School. Okay. In other words, he, he was setting... He, he appeared to be setting himself up as impenetrable or something. I'm not sure exactly what. Uh, now that I've gotten older, I, I, I think that had to do with some of his own anxieties. But uh, 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 it, it was imbued for, in me that I was from the right stock. But uh, I've, I've always had difficulty with some of those concepts. Uh, but what ha uh, I got othered about four or five years ago. I've lived in Nashville for about uh, 30 years and uh, I belong to the Harvard Club here and, and I've done, uh, I, I, I've done interview in, uh, interviewing for them and I've gone to most of their activities. And uh, uh, in, in some ways it's been rewarding. Uh, maybe five years ago, uh, Green, Green Hills is one of the wealthiest parts of town and I was shopping in a Whole Foods about five years ago, and there is a uh, Asian woman who was an MD, married to an MD. The, uh, one or both of them work at Vanderbilt, and they are uh, uh, they they have a big house, and they'd been holding a lot of the Harvard Club meetings there. And uh, I'm at Whole Foods in in the Green Hills area, and I see her shopping a little ways away, and. Uh, she, she seems to be looking up at me and then looking away and I'm not sure whether she wants to talk to me or not. And I saw myself doing the same thing. And then I said, well, I, I, I might as well go over and talk to her. And I did. And uh, one of the first things she said was, you don't live around here, do you? And, and I felt pinned like, like a uh, butterfly pinned on a uh, wall. And that's the last time I've gone back to the Harvard club. The uh, whole thing got me so messed up and maybe I've had the uh, luxury of not having to deal with that that type of attack or not mentioning it or, or not no, not realizing it other times but but uh, uh, that that's uh, I guess I was othered economically and or whatever other ways were involved how, how did you feel though you haven't told us how you felt I felt sort of embarrassed annoyed what do I want to do with these people anymore? Uh, 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 that, that, uh, yeah, uh, maybe ashamed in some ways. John Woodford. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, 
Well, you know, I don't think we're going to get away from othering in a certain sense in that uh, from the uh, unicellular level on up through tissues and organs and creatures, um, <laughs> everything senses, it gets its own identity by what self and not self and figuring out what's me and what's not me or wh whether it's even, you know, whether it's conscious or not. So this process of, uh, of individuating or becoming something that can be identified, it's, uh, it's, you know, it's me and then there's others. So it doesn't have to be a, uh, an evil or overbearing or exploitive uh, distinction, but it can be. So we have to look at it, I think, historically and not necessarily always uh, subjectively and idiosyncratically because it's going to go on. And as take, for example, you're talking about um, the royalty and it sounded as if it was the queen of, um, of England or something or other, but, <clears throat> but, you know, there was royalty in Africa before uh, colonial days with all sorts of patterns of, of othering uh, taking place there, not just there, of course, around the world, there have been, there have been these uh, divisions of, of people. So it's, you know, I think, I think it's important to try to universalize our uh, look at questions like this so that we don't raise examples from our own individual or even our countries or our group within the country's experience and uh, lose sight of the fact that it's a process that includes far more people and places than just us. I hope that I, well, I, I hope that I made it clear that this is a, a national, international, as well as a state, county, um, city, individual thing. I, and I hope I made it clear that it traverses, it cr crosses all kinds of borders. Great. I'm just emphasizing it. Okay. Right. Right. Not right, but I, but I, it's important for me to make sure that I, I made that clear to everybody. And I am, I, in fact, that is one of the distinctions I was trying to argue for the distinctions that the, the, the dif differentiation on, on the basis of just race or ethnicity just doesn't cut it anymore. I mean, that's one of the important points I say in all the speeches I, I give, that th this, this thing is now, it's, it's clear from the literature, it's clear from observations that it is an international product, that we all engage in it. Uh, people always wonder if I am suggesting that othering takes place by Blacks, among Blacks, and I'm very clear this thing is touches everybody now having said that it's and i and i, and I agree with your point i am not trying to suggest that we all get now starting gazing on neighbors and and do nothing my point is to sensitize everybody that this is a ubiquitous activity we're all doing it we're doing it to each other and so on that it, it has extremely negative potential because that's the basis of many wars. Uh, so on that level, it's very important, uh, but, but we can do something about it if we are sensitive and are interested in, in pursuing the notions of dignity. 
And John, I think that's that's important for me. I, I'm, and I'm not trying to turn the society into a, a, a pot of just negativity. It, it, it is important. It is important for us to recognize that this is something that we can make have an impact on and do it on an individual basis and leave those who are interested in in grander schemes, let them participate in grander schemes. But my lectures most often on this topic are really aimed at people saying, just look around at what you do yourself and see how you can change things within your family, within your church, within your school. And it's certainly one of the things I pursued at Yale. I wasn't interested in taking on the whole university. But I think if you are sensitive to it, if you're running a unit, let's say, and you've got 10 employees in there, you can think about the way in which you interact with people. And certainly we're interested in, in it in medicine because it does have an impact on how the physician responds to a variety of individuals in his office one at a time. And that's, that's, that's the whole point, that what you do with the individual in front of you is a really significant point. And that's, that's all I'm aiming for. I don't, I don't expect to change anything in Washington, D.C., but, I, but, the, but physicians who interact with me, I try to say, you know, you can't do that with that person, you know, what you just did. I'm talking about one other person that it was happened to. Ezra, let me ask you this. I mean, how, in, in terms of that Lowell House experience, I mean, how does that differ from racism versus otherism? I mean, tell me the distinction, if there is one, or does it matter? Oh, that, that, that doesn't matter to me. I was, I, was, uh, I, was, I, was, I was trying to discuss othering as a mechanism, as a technique that exists in all forms of, uh, in, in all forms of discrimination and in thinking about the relationship between you um, and another individual. I was not linking it, uh, I was not linking it only to the business of, um, of, of race or, or, or ethnicity. And in fact, in, in fact, I think as we explore now, uh, as we, we do more qualitative research and, and, and ask people what they, what they meant and how, how they felt about X or Y or Z, sometimes you know, the reaction is, uh, is, is eye-opening. It's not, it's not just, it's not always, it's not always race. It's it's, um, it's there. There are other kinds of axes operative and determinative of, of uh, how the complex relationships between between two or three people. So I don't I don't see that as a I don't see that as a, a, a particularly important distinction. Which comes back to the point I was trying to make at the other the other meeting. Kent, uh, that um, as I remember the speaker trying to make a, a sophisticated distinction between racism and caste and for me for me while it's an it's a wonderful academic exercise and i wasn't criticizing that at all mm -hmm. i was talking mm -hmm. about i was talking about what it meant uh for me as someone interested in improving relationships uh between people it, it, it this is it's, it's a mechanism it's a mechanism that that is so ubiquitous it's important to understand it the psychoanalysts think about it very differently I don't mean that they do it in a different way from the way I presented it to you, but they dwell much more on the, uh, the interesting mechanisms operative in, in childhood, for example, or in infancy, because they're interested in, in, in clarifying those mechanisms. And they want to they contribute information about that end of the cycle. 
I am much more interested in the way it's operative as a social construct. And that's what adults have to contend with. You know, they're sort of two segments, what's going on in your head. And of course, there's a biological dimension. I am not a biologist. But then there's this business about the interaction between you as person with what's going on in the, in the social society. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that's how I think about it. Mm-hmm. Ken. Um, a question for Ezra. I wonder if you could expand on uh, what you began with, which is discussing the development uh, from infancy. And if I understood correctly, and perhaps I didn't, uh, you're saying this, this differentiation in the way the infant experiences other humans uh, is just something we all experience, we all go through. And as, as I hear your description and your examples of othering, uh, they're all uh, negative. Uh, uh, and occasionally, you know, we hear about sort of positive spins, somewhat saccharine or cliched about embracing difference, appreciating difference. I do think in terms of our experience uh, at Harvard College, uh, right off the bat, that was a challenge. You know, we started with the public school boys and the preppies uh, uh, as, a, as a distinction, and then people from other states, people from other countries, people of other sexual orientations, uh, people of other races. Um, we're all dealing with that, and I must say, I, I, I would hazard a guess that for all of us, um, despite the, the negative othering experiences, and I, as a Jew, had some of those um, myself uh, along the way. They were quite interesting and not pleasant. Um, uh, but we had some very positive ones. And I guess I'm, I'm just, if I un- again, if I understand the starting point um, that you were addressing, Ezra, I wonder what, if anything, you have to say about how we, we flip that switch uh, in a different direction or are the tendencies towards <clears throat> self-aggrandizing and creating caste and creating superior versus inferior relationships in our lives if that's just something that's also so wired in uh, that we're stuck early on there are these perceptions of uh of of uh, of the infant and i think the standard response to that is to say that what you're really trying to provide for the infant is a certain degree of constancy so that you minimize the negative things that m- may happen. So I think to, if to, to sort of uh, to do it with broad strokes, and I'm doing the broad strokes deliberately because I'm not a psychoanalyst and I'm certainly not a child psychoanalyst. But the whole point is if you, if you, can, create, um, if you can create a certain constancy in, uh, in, in early life, the theory is that things ought to get better and we're putting the emphasis then on positivity. Of course, of course, even though I say that as as uh, as thoughtfully as I can, I'm taking a lot of shortcuts, and the shortcuts have to do with one. I'm not mentioning anything biological, and there's a hell of a lot of stuff going on biologically in the child because that's that's going on in the brain, and we have all kinds of things happening in the brain, which which are related. Um, sorry, my biochemist friend isn't here, but it related to all, you know, the biochemistry and the neurology and all that sort of stuff. So that's one thing. But we want to minimize the negative stuff that's going to have an impact on that brain by, by reinforcing the positive things that we can do. 
which is why there's this emphasis on a constant family, a family that's uh, that's full of grace and kindness and so on. I think I think we've moved past Freud stuff that you know it, it's it's got to be father and mother we're talking about. We'll, we'll, we'll do particularly in minority groups and poverty-stricken groups. You want to try and get constancy, and you, you're not going to fight about who the hell provides the constancy. You follow me? Absolutely. But, Thank uh, you. We all have a job to do in in being the purveyors of the positivity, and much of that positivity is coming through not only the institutions we build, but the way in which, of course, we all interact on a human basis, and that's that's part of the point. That was classmate Ezra Griffith. He is Professor Emeritus of and Senior Research Scientist in Psychiatry at Yale University School of Medicine. And that's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, which you can find on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or from wherever you get your podcasts. Plus, you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.